Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled Hometown Prophets. It's based upon the lectionary readings for July 4th, 2021. Stay in your lane. Has anyone ever said this to you? Have you ever said it to anyone? It's an admonishment I've been thinking about a lot while writing this essay. Our reluctance to let other people change, our resistance to changing ourselves, our fear of the familiar becoming strange, becoming new. Apparently, the phrase became prominent in 2018 when the National Rifle Association criticized emergency room doctors in the United States for commenting on America's gun crisis. Doctors should stay in their lane, the NRA tweeted. That is, they should practice medicine and stick to their areas of expertise instead of expressing opinions on subjects they know nothing about. The doctors responded immediately by sharing stories of patients who had arrived in their emergency rooms following traumatic gun-related injuries and deaths. This is our lane, they tweeted. In our gospel reading this week, Jesus arrives back in his hometown of Nazareth after a long stretch of fruitful ministry. In the weeks preceding his return, he has secured the loyalty of twelve disciples, described God's kingdom with provocative parables, exercised demons, healed the sick, calmed a storm, and raised a little girl from the dead. He has become, in other words, a local hero. Or so we would think if Mark's gospel didn't disabuse us. In this week's story, Jesus enters the synagogue of his boyhood and begins to teach in the tradition of the rabbis. At first, things go very well. His townspeople receive his words with astonishment and curiosity. Where did this man get all this? They ask each other. What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? But then, almost without warning, something happens. Someone in the crowd, perhaps a jealous old neighbor of Mary's or a childhood rival of Jesus's, or the notorious village gossip who loves stirring up dissension, starts asking prickly questions. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here among us? At this point, the text tells us, the mood in the synagogue shifts. Appreciation morphs into accusation, curiosity becomes contempt, and the people take offense. They decide that Jesus is presuming too much, exceeding his bounds, not staying in his lane. In her sermon, Sapping God's Strength, Barbara Brown Taylor points out that the only reason to identify someone by his mother in Jesus' day is to question his legitimacy, to highlight the fact that no one knows for sure who his father is, In other words, to refer to Jesus as the son of Mary is a calculated act on the part of his fellow villagers, a weaponized use of Jesus' birth story to humiliate him into silence. In a social system where one's status is fixed at birth, it's not possible for someone like Jesus, a mere carpenter of questionable parentage, to amount to anything. He has no business rising above his dicey beginnings, no business speaking with authority, no business becoming a leader, much less the Messiah. We know exactly where you come from, boy. Don't get too big for your britches. Remember your place. The truly sad and astonishing thing about the story is that the townspeople's suspicion and resentment diminish Jesus' ability to work good on their behalf. 
He could do no deed of power there, Mark writes with grim finality. In some mysterious and disturbing way, the people's small-mindedness, their lack of trust, and their inability to embrace a new facet of Jesus' life and mission keep them in spiritual poverty. Notice that their lack of faith isn't a mere technicality. It has real and lamentable consequences. It constrains Jesus. It blocks the healing work he longs to do for the people he loves. Pause and think about this for a minute. Do we know that our unbelief has real-world consequences? That in the mysterious economy of God, we are called to participate with God's Spirit in the transformation of the world? That our refusal to do so matters. Something precious is lost when we fail to recognize the unfamiliar within the familiar, when we turn away from the extraordinary within the ordinary. We miss the presence of God in our midst. According to Mark, it is Jesus' own community, his very own faith community, that fails to recognize the truth of who he is. What does this mean for us, the church? How, when, and where do we miss out on the sacred because we expect God to stay in God's lane? because we insist that Jesus speak in the time-worn ways we know best from our lifetimes of church-going and Bible-reading, because we demand that God act in ways that protect our status quo, because we recoil when God shows up unexpectedly and dares to do a new thing. The disconcerting truth about this week's gospel is that we are the modern-day equivalent of Jesus' ancient townspeople. We are the ones who think we know Jesus best the ones jaded by religious overfamiliarity. What will it take to follow him into new and uncomfortable territory, to see him where we least desire to look for him? The uncomfortable fact is Jesus offends his beloved community in this story. Maybe if the Jesus we worship never offends us, then it's not really Jesus we're worshiping. Yeah, ouch. When was the last time Jesus made you angry? by stepping out of the lane you've placed him in? When was the last time he touched whatever it is you call holy, your conservatism, your progressivism, your theology, your denomination, your biblical literacy, your prayer life, your politics, your wokeness, and asked you to look beyond it to find him? The call of the gospel is not a call to stand still. It is a call to choose movement over stasis, change over security, growth over decay. So I wonder, how do I refuse to let others in my life grow and change? When do I box them into identities that are narrow and constricting? Where in my life do I silence the unfamiliar instead of leaning into newness with curiosity and delight? Do I allow the people I'm close to to become do I allow myself to become? Or do I cut myself and others off with expectations that are severe and stifling? You will always be small, weak, broken, insufficient, disappointing. You will never outgrow your background, race, family, upbringing, wounds, addictions. You must always be recognizable, accommodating, domesticated, mine. These are questions to ask ourselves as individuals and as communities, but also as the church. Whose voices have we sidelined ac across history? Whose perspectives do we still deem unworthy of prophetic authority? Where has our love of tradition hardened us against new perspectives? 
How has our fear of the new made us obsolete and lifeless? The scandal of the Incarnation is precisely that Jesus doesn't stay in his lane. God doesn't limit God's self to our small and stingy notions of the sacred. God exceeds, God abounds, God transgresses, God transcends. The lowly carpenter reveals himself as Lord. The guy with the tainted birth story offers us salvation. The hometown prophet tells us truths we'd much rather not hear. We might be scandalized by his lane crossing, but he's not. We might put limits on his deeds of power, but those limits won't confine him for long. We might amaze him with our unbelief, but he will call out to us nevertheless, daring us always to see and experience him anew. For books this week, Dan reviews Anne Harrington's Mind Fixers, Psychiatry's Troubled Search for the Biology of Mental Illness. One standard narrative of the history of psychiatry is that around 1980, after dominating the field for 50 years, the wasteland and nonsense of the Freudian model of mental illness was displaced by a new and revolutionary medical model that searched for causes and cures in a strictly biological manner, just like it did in cancer or heart disease. Psychoanalytic talk therapy gave way to neurobiology, genetics, and pharmacology. The focus moved from the unconscious mind to the physical brain. In the fall of 1988, for example, Samuel Guse gave a lecture in London with the title Biological Psychiatry, Is There Any Other Kind? In this, quote, simple explanatory story, says the Harvard historian of science, Anne Harrington, there are heroes and villains and a happy ending. The only trouble with the story, though, is that it is wrong, not just slightly wrong, but wrong in every particular. In her harsh and even inflammatory critique of the history of psychiatry, brain scientists of the early 20th century did not fall victim to the rise of Freud and his minions. Rather, the earlier attempt to find physical causes for mental diseases failed on its own terms. Many diagnoses back then were dubious. Personal weakness, bad habits, bad heredity, germs, bad mothers, immorality, metabolism, etc. Some treatments were terrifying lunatic asylums, physical restraint, seclusion rooms, hypnosis, religious mind cure, colonic irrigation, organ extraction, induced malarial fevers, insulin-induced comas, drug-induced shock treatments, electric shock treatment, lobotomies, which procedure won a Nobel Prize, sterilization, and, of course, the drugs. Despite its promises, the post-Freudian biological revolution has failed miserably. For make no mistake... Today, one is hard-pressed to find anyone knowledgeable who believes that the so-called biological revolution of the 1980s made good on most or even any of its therapeutic and scientific promises. It is now increasingly clear to the general public that it overreached, overpromised, overdiagnosed, overmedicated, and compromised its principles. Even the meaningful findings and advances of the last 40 years have proven hard to replicate and interpret. With separate chapters on schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and depression, Harrington shows how for people suffering from mental illness, there have been few improvements in diagnosis and treatments. Instead, there's been a big gap between promises and reality. Big Pharma, once the target of moral outrage, has abandoned the field. The frontline drugs prescribed today are often 50 or more years old. The DSM-5 of 2013 of the American Psychiatric Association, the Bible of Psychiatry, is now considered by many to be a disaster. I mentioned reading this book to a friend who is a neurobiologist at Stanford. His response was telling. 
It's a pretty dismal field of medicine, he said. The human brain, mind, body next is, ex is extremely complex and very hard to study well. We need a new narrative, says Harrington, and that starts with honest talk about the last hundred years. For films this week, Dan reviews Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. If you can't read Howard Zinn's controversial book that has been banned in parts of the United States and sold over two million copies, A People's History of the United States, 1492 to the present, this 90-minute documentary is a good alternative. Zinn asked a basic question. Who gets to write history and in so doing shape the myths and narratives by which we live? Most history is written from above, that is, about presidents, generals, their wars, peace treaties, and the like. The radical historian Zinn turns his perspective upside down. He reads history from below, from the perspective of a coal miner, a black slave, or a Vietnamese rice farmer. History looks very different from a woman who could not vote, own property, pursue education, or advance in employment than for George Washington, the richest man in America in his day. Zinn grew up in the slums of Brooklyn, the son of two immigrant factory workers. After high school, he worked for three years in the shipyards. After serving in the Air Force, he completed his doctorate in history at Columbia University. From 1956 to 1963, he taught at Spelman College, the first historically black female institution of higher education. And then from 1964 until 1988, he was a professor of political science at Boston University. Among his more than 30 books, A People's History is Zinn's best-known work. It typifies his radical analysis of the structures of power that form the basis of his teaching, writing, and activism in movements for peace and justice. Zinn wrote A People's History, he says, to awaken a greater consciousness of class conflict, racial injustice, sexual inequality, and national arrogance, especially as those are expressed in the marriage of predatory capitalism, permanent militarism, government power, and unjust laws. It's extremely important, he says, that citizens develop independent, critical judgment and learn a different sort of history, one that will make them skeptical of what they hear from authority and that will foster rather than suppress a permanent adversarial culture. Throughout his book, Zinn highlights the resistors and revolutionaries, some famous but many unknown, who did just this. Despite government control and corporate power that urge conformity to their own narratives, Zinn recovers the many lost stories that represent the bubbling of change under the surface of obedience. I watched this movie on Amazon Prime streaming video. And lastly, for poetry, A Vision by Wendell Berry. If we will have the wisdom to survive, to stand like slow-growing trees on a ruined place, renewing, enriching it, if we will make our seasons welcome here, asking not too much of earth or heaven, then a long time after we are dead, the lives our lives prepare will live here, their houses strongly placed upon the valley fields and gardens rich in the windows. The river will run clear as we never know it, and over it, birdsong like a canopy. On the levels of the hills will be green meadows, stock bells in noon shade. On the steeps where greed and ignorance cut down the old forest, an old forest will stand. Its rich leaf fall drifting on its roots. The veins of forgotten springs will be opened. Families will be singing in the fields. In their voices they will hear a music risen out of the ground. They will take nothing from the ground they will not return, whatever the grief at parting. 
memory native to this valley will spread over it like a grove and memory will grow into legend legend into song song into sacrament the abundance of this place the songs of its people and its birds will be health and wisdom and indwelling light this is no paradisal dream its hardship is its possibility Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for July 4th, 2021. I'm Debbie Thomas.